Next hour on most of these the same frequencies. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the program. Today we are going to talk about a rather serious topic: the future. This is cracking the code with Sadir Ispahani. In this episode, Kay Buck, CEO and Executive Director of CAST, the Coalition to Abolish Slavery and Trafficking. I think that the level of awareness around trafficking has just ballooned. It's phenomenal. Buck says being a leader means building trust. Acknowledging weaknesses helps because it shows you're human. People respond more to, I guess, just being human. And that's when trust starts. She says a family tragedy when she was a child helped make her a resilient leader. When I was very young, seven years old, my sister was killed by a drunk driver. It really changed the trajectory of my family. Her sister's tragic death led Buck to stand up for other children. It would usually be in a situation where someone was being treated unfairly or their rights were dismissed at school. It was always those scenarios where my parents would get a phone call from the school because I was sticking up for people. Now your guide for Cracking the Code, Sudhir Ispahani. Okay, welcome to uh, Cracking the Code. Uh, Thank you. you. Know, this has uh, been a privilege to get to know you in a very short time, and I've uh, really enjoyed our conversations. Oh, me as well. Uh, thank you so much for having me, and I agree. It's been such a pleasure getting to know you and your whole family. Oh, thank you. And um, we'll, we'll always love to start with our guests, having them share their uh, childhood journey. Mm. You know, and uh, clearly, you're an incredible leader uh, currently as the CEO of Castelli. So uh, we love to see how that journey happened. And if you can share for our audience a little bit about where life began for you, mom and dad, and how things unfolded. And yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So that's a really good question because it's taken me um, many years to figure out how my childhood actually mm -hmm. from Canada. Mm -hmm. And um, when I was very young, seven years old, my sister was killed by a drunk driver. Mm -hmm. And so it really changed the trajectory of my family, you know, of my family and how we communicated and uh, all sorts of things. And, you know, my family could never really quite figure out why I was such a strong activist mm -hmm. because I showed signs even as early as maybe 12 years old. And, you know, I realized not until maybe my mid to late 30s when I was pregnant with my own daughter, that my whole career of activism was really about searching for sisterhood. Mm -hmm. Because today, fast forward to being the CEO of CAST um, and working around the world um, empowering women and girls, it's really been about sisterhood mm -hmm. and focusing on the strength and the bond that women have and how to support one another to create a better world. Mm -hmm. So, you know, something horrible that happened to me and my family when I was a little girl, you know, really actually helped me become, I think, a resilient leader. Mm. It's quite, uh, you know, uh, you shared before with me this this whole circumstance mm -hmm. and adversity is a very interesting uh, 
thing that all of us experience at some point in our lives. Mm-hmm. But um, early in, the, in childhood, having experienced that, what were some of those lessons that you would look back on and say you learned that you're now applying in, in the real world that you live in, yeah. being a leader? I think, you know, a lot of things, but one in particular is a sense of self-reliance. Mm. So, you know, when when something traumatic, you know, happens to you as a child, and especially when it impacts your whole family, mm. there is a lot of withdrawal. So, you know, of course, it wasn't that my parents or my brother didn't love me. There was a lot of love in our family. Mm-hmm. But being able to communicate it through all of the trauma that we all felt separately did separate us. Mm -hmm. And so as a result, I really had to be responsible for myself because sometimes my parents just could not emotionally be there. Mm -hmm. And so it, it definitely helped me to be, you know, to be independent, um, and, you know, when I graduated from college, the first thing I did was travel the world. I moved to Asia, mm-hmm. I think a week after I graduated. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it really um, instilled in me this sense of, you know, adventure, finding myself, you know, searching and exploring without fear. Mm-hmm. That was the key that, you know, I did feel like there wasn't much you know, that could happen to me that would be worse than what already did. Mm-hmm. So I really did have a sense of freedom uh, to explore myself and the world. It's very uh, fascinating to hear, uh, Kay. You know, it's very interesting that um, you, you, that early on, the age of seven, picked up on those important learnings you know, and <clears throat> that's clearly carried you a long way. Self-reliance and, of course, you know, uh, in the age of uh, having to, as a as a woman and as a leader, mm-hmm. yeah. prove your mettle, so to speak, uh, in a world that's changing and ever-changing. Well, and I think it helps me now because I'm working on a lot of different levels. So I work a lot with women. All of my staff, I think, except three are Mm. women. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And we're a pretty big staff. I've got a staff of about 50 people. Um, Plus, you know, 80% of our clients are women and girls. So I, most of my work is really surrounded by women and girls. And so I'm able to, you know, take those lessons to people that I now mentor Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, help them realize that you have to walk through fear, you know, fearful situations in order to get to the other side. Like mm-hmm. the only way you can do it is just take a deep breath and move forward. Right. And I think that sense of fearlessness, no matter, you know, what the odds are, comes through in both my work and my personal life. Because I'm also a proud mom to a 13-year-old daughter. Uh, I have a teenager in the house now. And, um, you know, that's the same way I also communicate and and parent her mm-hmm. is, you know, it's okay to feel fear, but don't let it stop you. So when, when did you really uh, pick up the the view that you were thrust into leadership and, mm. and, you know, leadership is something now you do 
daily and you live in it. Mm -hmm. But what was that journey like when you first, was it early in your childhood? Was it later? Yeah, I think it was early on. Um, again, because of my my sister's death, you know, I, you know, I was really alone a lot. And so, you know, at school, I would you know, branch off and, you know, be with kids. And even then I showed quite a bit of leadership. Mm. And it would usually be in a situation where someone was being treated unfairly or their rights were dismissed at school. It was always those scenarios mm -hmm. where my parents would get a phone call from the school because I was sticking up for people. Mm -hmm. And I don't really exactly know where that came from, but I know for sure that my parents would say that I showed those types of, of uh, leadership skills early on. Mm -hmm. I always had a sense, like a deep sense of um, justice. Mm. And it's always fueled me, no matter what. That's very interesting. Mm -hmm. And, you know, um, talking about leadership, clearly, so some of those early um, situations that you, you've sort of been in, have clearly laid the foundation for core values and morals, mm -hmm. which allow you to drive today to the leadership traits that you want to see in yourself and in the people that you, you lead. Mm -hmm. um, what are some of those that you would say that are important to you? Yeah, so core values. Um, gosh, I think definitely fairness and mm. integrity. That mm. Those are huge for me. Um, but also resilience and strength. You know, I think that as a nonprofit leader in particular, especially doing the work that we do that touches on issues of corruption at all levels, yeah. um, it is very, very important to me and the people I surround myself with to have a great deal of integrity that we bring to the work, that we, you know, in a sense, live into our values, um, not just on paper, but every day in the work that we do. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I got, this was maybe five years ago. I'll never forget this because, like I said before, 80% of our clients are women and girls, but that also means that 20% are men and boys. Mm -hmm. And I got mm -hmm. one of the greatest compliments from one of our male clients who at the time was 19 years old. So, mm -hmm you know, a young, young man. And he said, you know, you and Cast taught me what it means to be a real man. Mm. And I just thought that was amazing because for the most part, a lot of our framework for our services at Cast are, you know, focused on, you know, the needs of women and girls because mm -hmm. those are the majority of our clients. But to have one of our young male clients um, tell me that that framework really resonated for him because it helped him to be not just a survivor of human trafficking, but to go on and be a loyal and loving husband and father who mm -hmm. he is today. Like, because now he's, you know, now I think he's 26 years old mm -hmm. and um, has a family of his own, and, and it really shows. Mm -hmm. Just how what an amazing you know husband and father and member of the community that he's become. So I think those values of 
you know, living into our values and walking the talk mm -hmm. is really, really important to me on a day-to-day -day level for my own daughter and my family, for our clients. Mm -hmm. But it also helps, you know, it helps address all of these really important global issues that we're seeing today around hate crimes and violence and, um, you know, inequity. There's there's just so much to be done. But mm -hmm. if we can walk that talk with our values on a daily basis, we can connect with others around the world who are doing the same mm -hmm. and really address these issues from a global standpoint. And, you know, we see evidence of that on the issue of trafficking. I mean, it's certainly nowhere near, be, you know, uh, a place where it can be eradicated. But we are inching forward brick by brick and mm -hmm. person by person. And, you know, at CAST, our whole idea is to end human trafficking one survivor at a time. And the reason we say that is because we're a service provider. Mm -hmm. So we are not, you know, a think tank, so to speak. We are on, on the scale of how to address leadership among survivors of trafficking so that they can partner with us and others all over the world to put an end to trafficking. Mm -hmm. so, so that's, that's our small but important role to play mm -hmm. in the movement against trafficking. Mm -hmm. Share a little bit more of that vision of CAST, you know, yeah. on that topic yeah. for the benefit of our audience. Yeah, yes. I think, well, CAST is a unique organization. It's actually why I um, I came to CAST. I'm not one of the founders, but I was their first executive director, and they plucked me from uh, the halls of justice in Sacramento, where I was doing policy work on behalf of a lot of uh, women's organizations that focus on sexual violence. Mm -hmm. And because I had spent six years in Asia working on human trafficking, the founders of CAST really thought that would be a great combination of skills and passion, that mm -hmm. international work, but also work in the violence against women uh, arena here in the U.S. And, um, you know, essentially, I took the job because they were not just a service provider. Had they been just a, only a service provider, I'm not so sure that I would be here today mm -hmm. in Los Angeles running this amazing organization. Um, I loved it because there was this foundation and I could, I already had a vision, the first interview that I had, um, that we could really emphasize and invest in survivors' leadership to set us apart from other organizations and other, you know, spaces and be that authentic voice to end human trafficking. I mean, who better to inform, you know, policy on human trafficking than people who've experienced it firsthand. Mm -hmm. And that's the place that I was coming from and the vision that I had when I first came to CAST. They were open and, in fact, already doing the staff anyway, even though it was small. I think I had three staff when I first came to CAST. They were already being called on by Congress and so many different politicians and legislators um, to help them understand what this new human rights epidemic was. And the vision that I brought to CAST was that we would take it much deeper so that we could offer up 
more information that could really address prevention policy, Mm -hmm. not just awareness. Mm -hmm. And the way to do that was to invest in survivors to be that authentic expert and Mm -hmm. voice for change. And clearly that's a very uh, uh, appropriate topic because there's a lot going on in the world we live in today related Mm -hmm. to the subject. So Exactly. I mean, look at the girls in Nigeria. Look at uh, the caravan with so many unaccompanied minors coming from Central America. You know, trafficking happens. It's ripe when people are vulnerable and traffickers prey on vulnerability. So all of the things that are happening in the news today, whether it be you know, civil war or political conflicts or government corruption Mm -hmm. or even natural disasters force people into that vulnerable state. And that is, you know, that is one of the the factors that causes trafficking in the first place. It's very uh, interesting to to hear you say that because there's clearly a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of... um, interest in this whole area from all uh, all many many groups of businesses government all of that do you feel that you're making good progress in what what yeah. you're doing with with the vision that cast has that is something i ask myself honestly almost every morning and um i've seen remarkable progress mm-hmm. in the form of awareness so there's more you know, more players are involved in the fight against human trafficking. Mm -hmm. And that is really positive because no, you know, one movement can do this alone. We need the business community to join us. We Mm -hmm. need, um, you know, corporate social responsibility programs in major corporations to really, you know, adopt this issue like they have you know, for environmental justice issues, for mm-hmm. example, in the same way. So to really own it and address it through all of their supply chains. Yeah. We also need governments at all level, not just local government and not just the federal government, but, you know, local, state or provincial, depending on what country you, you live in, and federal to really take this on and to, you know, join the likes of the United Nations to make, you know, there many countries now have national or federal plans of action on mm-hmm. how to address human trafficking. Um, so that awareness at all levels, I've definitely seen um, remarkable progress. Mm-hmm. Where we still need to grow is at that deeper level. Mm-hmm. So, you know, having a national plan of action is great, but it's just one step in the right direction. We need to have rigorous evaluation um, from, you know, third parties to be a part of that. And that's where I think survivors have a key role to play as well, that they should be a part of that, um, of establishing accountability measures for Mm -hmm. governments and for the United Nations, for companies, even for non-governmental organizations. Mm -hmm. And the more we can deepen our understanding of how trafficking happens, um, the more progress we have, we, we will have. So what I'm saying is that right now, the awareness of the issue and what it is has definitely 
increased tenfold, if not mm-hmm. more, since I started doing this work. What needs to still happen is to deepen the level of understanding so that all of the new players coming to home base, you know, coming to the movement to do something about it, they need to have a deeper understanding of the complicated nature of this issue. Mm-hmm. Um, most people still believe that human trafficking is, you know, the commercial sexual exploitation of girls. And they're not thinking outside the box that this mm-hmm. is happening on an intergenerational level even of families you know mm-hmm. and if you if you look at india and there's families who modern slavery is basically passed on from mm-hmm. generation to generation so that their children are basically born into a situation of modern slavery mm-hmm. and that could be in the brick industry it could be in lots of different labor industries, not just the commercial sex industry. Mm-hmm. So a lot of folks, um, you know, who I guess are not, you know, activists, mm-hmm. they don't still don't have that deeper level of understanding of what modern slavery is today. It's very, actually, it's a very important point. And have you seen that evolve and change quite radically around the world and here in the United States? Yeah, I have. I mean, I I think that the level of awareness around sex trafficking has just ballooned. I mean, it's phenomenal and it's amazing because now we're able to change laws. And here in California, a couple of years ago, we were able to change laws so that law enforcement can no longer arrest children, you know, minors up to age 18 Mm -hmm. uh, or under 18 for prostitution related crimes because we were able to educate and train and actually change a social norm of how the criminal justice system and frankly many of our friends and neighbors Mm -hmm. how they were viewing this particular type of survivor of sex trafficking. Right. Mm-hmm. And that it's a it's it's a big it was a huge deal mm-hmm. for this law to shift and for law enforcement agencies in particular to view women and girls and, you know, boys as well in the sex industry in a different way. Mm-hmm. And that's when you know you're successful, when you're changing hearts and minds of people who then change their actions and behaviors. That said, we have had a heck of a challenge actually in expanding those types of laws to include kids who are trafficked in labor industries or uh, even adults in the commercial sex industry. So the norms, the social norms that we've managed to shift have been focused mostly on, I would say, girls in the commercial sex industry. And it kind of stops at age 18 Mm -hmm. because people think differently about uh, women, whatever age, as an adult in the commercial sex industry, even when human trafficking is present. Mm -hmm. And likewise, in the labor industry, uh, industries, I think we're having an even tougher time because, you know, I'll hear a lot like, well, you know, sure, that's bad what happened to them, but wasn't it worse? Wasn't he or she worse off in Guatemala? Mm -hmm. And that makes me really sad as a leader because, you know, you can't compare 
how they're used to living to what their what level of violence or exploitation they're experiencing here in the US or any country that it's still abuse and there's still this severe lack of equity mm-hmm. when it comes to you know how people are viewed because of poverty because of their socioeconomic status or because of their gender a lot of different factors mm-hmm. so you again we're kind of peeling the layers of just how complicated this issue is. It's not just a criminal justice matter of, okay, find the victim and then arrest the bad guy. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. you know made for TV. But what we do is we really, we try to unpack very complicated theories and social norms so that we can change people's hearts and minds that really gets to changing people's behaviors and actions, because that's when you you see real social change that's lasting. No, I agree with you. I mean, no matter what level of suffering, none of us should be able to justify it on a, on behalf of another human being, no that's matter right. what level it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's exactly so, right. Yeah. yeah. Switching back a little bit to the whole theme of leadership, and yeah. clearly there's, there's so much you've learned and so much you give back in your daily leadership style. So we all as leaders through our experiences, have learned a few things not to do. Yeah. <laughs> what so are some many. of those things? Oh my gosh, so many. I think? don't know where to start. <laughs> so share with us uh, a little bit about what you think <laughs> you've learned in this area of what not to do as a leader. Yeah, yeah. I think, um, I think maybe one of the biggest lessons that I've learned is... It's kind of you would you would think that it a leader should be strong and you know always have the answer, and I've actually learned the opposite that when I show reasonable you know vulnerability, more people want to follow. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of leaders make the mistake of you know knowing it all and letting people know that mm-hmm. and. Yeah, I think if you approach leadership in a more, in a humble, almost serving way, that you're mm-hmm. offering yourself to, you know, improve the human condition, that will go miles further than not. And so I think that's been my lesson, you know, especially when I was younger, I I always felt like you know, leadership was lonely, and I, I had to always have the answer and always be strong and not show any sort of weakness at all. Mm-hmm. And what I've learned through the years, especially as I've managed larger and larger teams, mm-hmm. is that people respond more to, I guess, just being human. Yeah. And that's when trust starts. Right. right. So, I mean, being a leader is all about your capacity and willingness to mm-hmm. build trust with others. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I feel really fortunate and grateful that I have a team where we have a really strong trust at CAST and it's it's intentional. I mean, we've worked really hard to build that as we grow as an organization. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is that this kind of 
you know, my experiences, especially early on in my 20s, when I started working with survivors of trafficking in Asia, that's actually who taught me how to trust. Mm. You know, I didn't have, I guess, a whole lot of trust as a child because of my experience losing my sister. Mm -hmm. And I didn't really have a good role model. Um, I had great role models in my parents for you know, integrity and honesty and all of that. But we didn't really talk a lot about trust. Mm -hmm. And again, I do think that when such extreme trauma happens to either an individual or family, um, trust gets broken and Mm -hmm. it's hard to rebuild. But when I started working with survivors of trafficking who had gone through so much in their life, I mean, Really, they had every reason and right to be angry with the world or to not, you know, want to do anything good. But they weren't. They were the opposite of that. They wanted to, you know, help other people so that didn't happen to their sister or just any other girl or boy. So I really feel grateful to survivors of trafficking for teaching me the value of trust and essentially how to build trust with people. It's the foundation of my leadership uh, with teams that I, you know, supervise and work with at CAST, but also in so many other places around the world. Mm-hmm. That's very interesting. Uh, you know, I appreciate you sharing those insights. Um, but um, clearly, you're in the in the business of uh, of coming alongside hurting people. So, what is one of the things that you think about that you want to instill with somebody you've met for the first time? Um, you mean survivors of trafficking, or just anyone? Anybody. Yeah, I think um, again, I go back to resilience and strength that I. You know, everyone falls on hard times, whether that be, you know, physical hardship or financial hardship or, you know, violence or emotional hardship. Mm -hmm. I mean, it it takes many, many forms. But I think that, you know, if we have that inner knowledge or faith of being able to get through something traumatic, Mm -hmm. that we can get there with the right type of support. So I think it's two things. It's believing in yourself, Mm -hmm. um, but also not being afraid to reach out to others for support. Mm -hmm. So those are the two things that I really try to teach people I mentor. I am lucky enough to be involved at USC as a senior fellow um, in their uh, school of business than the mm-hmm. social business lab. Mm-hmm. And so my job there is to mentor young business students mm-hmm. who have an interest in, you know, social causes, like how to use business and apply business models to, you know, to change the world, to make it a better place. Mm-hmm. And I think those are the two things that I talk about most when I'm mentoring my students is, mm-hmm. Uh, just like I do with my staff and my daughter, um, that it's believing in yourself no matter what, because you will come upon hard times. You'll find people who don't believe in you. And if you don't believe in yourself, you, you're you going to 
believe the other person. So it's really important to have that strong sense of self and strength. And then also reach out. Surround yourself with people who are good with the similar values and you know, I just had this conversation with my daughter uh, the night before last about, you know, trusting your gut, knowing when you meet someone, if you should trust them or not. Mm-hmm. Something I think we need to teach our teenagers mm-hmm. <laughs> a lot more. And I have to say, I'm I'm not exactly sure if this has anything to do with my parenting. I hope it does. But she really has a strong sense of... Um, of good. Mm-hmm. Like she knows when people are, when their actions are for good or when it's for bad. And she's able to figure that out at the young, ripe age of 13. And, you know, I think if more 13 year olds um, had that instinct in them, right. um, I think we'd have a better chance at protecting them. Mm. Fascinating. Clearly, one of the other key tenets of a great leader is execution, right? Yes. So share with me a little bit about your thoughts around execution and how you see that in terms of success as a leader. Yeah. Well, I think the first, for me, it was being comfortable talking about accountability. And I think this is for all leaders, but especially female leaders where Um, Many of the people that I am mobilizing in my job um, are men. That might be government leaders, Mm -hmm. might be donors, it might be my board. And it's important to feel comfortable as a woman leader to point things out when there's a lack of accountability, Mm -hmm. to, um, you know, execute on accountability measures. and you know, being that businesswoman that uh, people need you to be, so I think that was the first step was for me to actually talk about execution and who was responsible for executing A, B, and C. Um, and then I would say too that a lot of we female leaders tend to you know take things on and try to execute all on our own. I know I made that mistake early on in my career mm-hmm. as a leader. And, you know, I've learned since then to just ask people for help. And um, and that way you'll, you'll get that and you'll be able to execute multiplied right. because more people are on your team helping you to execute on that vision. Right. So for me, um, a lot of my job now today is very different from what it was, you know, 10, 15 years ago, mm-hmm. where I would try to, you know, be the visionary, but then also execute. Right. There's still some of that today. Uh, I think it's important to be able to to know how to do both. Yeah. But I rely much more heavily now on being the visionary for cast and for the movement and also for my life um, and rely and and manage people to execute on that vision. Mm. That's very interesting to hear. And, and, you know, I think um, effective delegation and follow through is a very critical component of that piece of execution. It is. And it's hard to get there. It's very hard to get there. It's easier to do the job than trying to get somebody else to 
to yeah, that. Yeah, right? that's true. Clearly, success is a very key component of uh, what you measure as a as a CEO and as a leader for your whole organization. And I'm sure your board is always on your case for yeah. that. So <laughs> share with us a little bit about, you know, how you see the f- future vision of CAST. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, having been with it for a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've been here. Uh, I've been with CAST now 15 years. Yeah. So it's the longest I've ever been with any company or organization. And I think what's kept me there is all of the new challenges that because human trafficking is still such an emerging issue compared to so many other um, social causes, there's always more to learn and adapt uh, in order to be successful. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I am lucky. I do have, I, ha- I have a terrific board. So I'm lucky that they really listen and follow through. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, hmm, with success, um, I think dedicating enough time to, it, it's hard to be an activist and a visionary mm-hmm. at the same time, right? So I've learned, um, actually, thanks to a foundation here in Santa Monica, the Durfee Foundation, mm-hmm. who really helped me take a step back in what they call creative disruption. Mm-hmm. So there was a study um, of nonprofit leaders that was done, I think, maybe four or five years ago. And Um, You know, it basically learned or showed, the study showed that leaders of nonprofit organizations need to take time to disconnect from Mm. the work. And that includes disconnecting from the board and the staff for a period of time. And they say that it's a three-month period of time is where they see success Mm. so that the leader of the organization can you know, be that the visionary that they were when they entered that organization mm-hmm. or entered that movement. Because you can get so um, wrapped, up. wrapped up and, you know, pressed down in the day-to-day stuff. Mm-hmm. And in order to be expansive in your mind, in your heart, your whole being, it's really important to be able to step away and have that perspective and be creative about the solution. That's the key. Mm-hmm. So this study showed that you know there's a methodology that this foundation uses to really empower leaders in this way. Mm-hmm. And I was fortunate enough to be uh, selected as one of the leaders that they uh, supported in this you know study and 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 it's a sabbatical basically mm-hmm. and i even remember i had to agree not to have any contact with my staff or board and they had to agree with for the same thing for a period of 3 months wow. and i left the country um and i just you know i what did i do i i traveled but i experienced new cultures and food i went back to Um, the same places that I worked and lived in Asia and reconnected with my creative activist Mm -hmm. again. And I'll tell you, when I came back to CAST, uh, it took us two years and we more than doubled in size. Mm -hmm. So for organizations looking for success in 
executing on growth strategies, mm -hmm. that's the way to do it. Mm -hmm. You know, allow your leader to be that visionary. And if they're able to have that space to do that, you can be creative in solutions and you're going to see growth for sure. Mm. Very interesting to hear. Very interesting concept. I hadn't heard this before. Yeah, right? I, I hadn't either. I mean, I was just lucky enough that the Durfee Foundation found me and I was able to participate in their work. And uh, they're still doing it today. They're still, I think they select um, maybe five leaders or something like that every two years. So it's a, a small oh, group. Yeah. But process. yeah, it's very vigorous process. Yeah. But um you know, the work that they do is very deep. It's not meant to, to, you know, help a lot of people all at once. It's really digging deeper, mm -hmm. uh, which is, again, what I'm about at CAST, too. It's like, let's take issues to that deeper level so we can have a greater impact. And that's what the foundation is doing in empowering nonprofit leaders. Wonderful. Clearly, you're mentoring uh, many leaders who talked a little bit Pleasure about your role at USC. Yeah. Uh, but in the world of mentoring women leaders and young and upcoming women leaders, give us, share with us some nuggets of wisdom that you would want to share with up-and-coming women leaders. Yeah, absolutely. I would say, you know, um, I've been told by people I mentor, especially women, that... Um, that they like it that I keep it real. And one example is a young woman. She was um, a marketing major, actually, at the business school at USC at mm -hmm. Marshall. And um, she had a heart for nonprofit work, but she had, or I should say she had a passion for nonprofit work. And to the extent where she even felt pressure to work in the nonprofit sector, even though you know, she didn't come from a wealthy family, so her student loans were enormous. And um, I remember a conversation because she, she was having conversations with her um, with her school advisors as well, right? And and her family, and I think was getting a lot of pressure to uh, to work at a nonprofit once she graduated. Mm -hmm. And my advice to her was. You know, what makes you think you can't change the world working at a, you know, a, a big company, a corporation? You can absolutely do that. Go that route and at least experience it and, you know, join a board of a nonprofit organization mm -hmm. or create a CSR program at your new company. Um, and if still after that you still feel like you need to go into nonprofit work, then do that. But at least go this way so that you're paying your bills and not worrying. Because if you're going into nonprofit plus carrying all this debt, you're going to be so, you know, um, you're going to be drowning in worry. You won't be able to make as much of an impact. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I just heard from her again recently, and this was I don't know, like eight years ago, perhaps. I don't remember. And she's doing so well. And she is engaged in the CSR program of that company. In fact, she's changed to a new company, and she's doing the same thing there. Um, and she's getting involved uh, volunteering at her local nonprofit. She lives in the Bay Area now. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I just, I think keeping it real and you know, a lot of, I think a lot of people, when they think of nonprofit work, they 
I don't know. It's like we tend to romanticize it a little bit, I mm. think. And it's truly deeply hard work. And mm. it's it's so saddening sometimes to see human suffering mm. and environmental suffering. And, um, you know, I think as a result, when we're mentoring especially young female leaders mm. where they tend to have a lot of pressures right. to, you know, do the right thing, either, you know, put up upon themselves or their school advisor, what have you. I think it's really important just to let them realize what they need to do mm-hmm. and, you know, weigh the pros and cons with them. But, you know, that any decision is okay. You can be a leader and an activist in any setting, not just a nonprofit organization. Mm-hmm. And then the second thing is going back to that sense of belief in oneself, Mm -hmm. where, again, this is something that women really struggle with, that we tend to want to please people more. We, um, I don't know, it's just, it's, it is a different style of, of leadership. And there are, I think, many pressures on female leaders. So it helps, I think, for young women that I mentor just to speak truth to that, that, you know, it helps them to know that I had the same pressures and, you know, the the path that I took may not be the path that they should take, but the fact that they just have someone to normalize those situations with is really valid and important mm-hmm. in their growth. Yeah. Coming back to... To women leaders, uh, do you feel you have to give different sets of advice for men versus women as you mentor them? Oh gosh, that is—I've never been asked that, and it's a great question. Um, yes, mm. I do. Until we live in a world that is truly equal, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I, I absolutely give different types of advice, Um, the pressures and the barriers that women experience in any sector are just different Mm -hmm. than, you know, their male counterparts. Mm -hmm. And that's a reality that we have. So I do think it's important when, um, you know, young women are looking for mentors Mm -hmm. that uh, it's with someone who can really provide that advice to them. So what would you share with a young woman leader who's looking to eventually be in a role like yours? Yeah, this, you know, Sudhir, this happens almost, I would say, at least once a month, where Mm -hmm. sometimes it is, um, you know, someone I know, and it's their daughter or someone who's just researched me on the internet Mm -hmm. and think that my job's really fun. Really, this this happens. I'm not I'm not kidding. And I'll just get a call or email out of the blue. And, you know, because we've grown so much, I'm not able to take on as many mentoring uh, relationships as I used to. But um, I, I'll admit that sometimes, you know, an email will really strike a chord with me and my heart and I'll contact them because mm-hmm. of something that they've said. And you know, really, my, my advice is similar for all all young women, and that is, you know, don't be afraid to be bold. That, you know, I have, I have, I can credit being bold 
in helping my career just as much as I can credit it for pulling me down. Because bold women are still, you know, it's still not as acceptable as when, like, my male counterparts, for example, are bold. So they get away with a lot more, especially, you know, in policy meetings and uh, that tend to be more male-dominated. And, you know, my advice to, to young women is don't be afraid of that. You will, you might actually be fired one day for being too bold. And that's okay. That's mm-hmm. a compliment. Take it as a compliment. Mm-hmm. You know, pick yourself up, you know, dust yourself off and move forward and find another place for you where you can be bold. Um, and I always tell the story of once I was fired, actually, uh, I, I was doing, it was a consulting job. And uh, I think for the time frame, I won't say where it was here, but for that time frame and where that particular organization was, mm-hmm. um because it was uh, it was male dominated, they were not ready for me being that bold, you know. So I had a choice to make. I could have, you know, tapered it off a little bit, been more subtle, um, or I could have been true to myself, which is the the journey that I took, and you know, was my bold self. And fast forward to today, this happened maybe twenty years ago. And it was a hard lesson in the beginning because it was devastating. I'd never been fired from anything. <laughs> I was so shocked. <laughs> but at the same time, now that policy that I was so bold to push forward mm. is now the norm in that setting. And it, it, I'll say it, it is a criminal justice mm-hmm. setting mm-hmm. that tends to be male-dominated, certainly more conservative. And uh, it was about having um, unbiased advocates in the room and and with a survivor of Mm -hmm. sexual violence during forensic exams, during law enforcement interviews. And now it's commonplace. Like Mm -hmm. now here in California, that's commonplace to have that unbiased advocate with you as a survivor. But back then when I was proposing it, it was almost unheard of. And certainly, you know, uh, criminal justice folks had a lot of feelings against it. (laughs) But, you know, I chose to be bold in me putting forth that proposal. I laid out my vision for it and I don't regret it. You know, it's no regrets. Um, so I guess going back to mentoring young women, I think that, you know, you will definitely, um, how do I say this, you know, just because you have a great vision and do the right thing, it won't always work out for you, but you have to take the long view and know that good change always takes a long time. You know, we could really spend a lot of time here talking about uh, such incredible nuggets of wisdom you, you're sharing with our audience, but unfortunately we have to bring it to a close. But I have a couple more questions. Yeah, and, absolutely. Uh, you know, before we close out. Yeah, yeah. The, the first one is uh, always like to ask our guests, you know, what is the latest book they're reading and how is mm. it influencing them? Well, gosh, it's it's the holidays, so this is the only time of year where I read stuff that's not about 
human trafficking or leadership. Like it's really a book that uh, I guess where I can really just let go. But it goes back to the importance of having that creative disruption in your life mm-hmm. at regular intervals. And um, so th- the book that I'm reading right now is uh, the new book from, um, oh, why am I blanking on his name now? Oh my gosh. It's my favorite Japanese writer, um, Murakami. I'm, bl- I'm blanking on his first name though. Mm-hmm. Why can't I remember? But his last name is Murakami. He has written, I don't know, probably over 15 or 20 books, mm-hmm. um, most of which now are translated into English. So English you know, listeners can also look him up. He is the kind of writer, when you think of a Salvador Dali painting, mm-hmm. he writes like that. Abstract. Very abstract and kind of weird, you know, uh, bordering on creepy sometimes. But it just, I love his work because it just takes me out of myself for a moment. And I don't know, and it also reminds me of living in Japan as well, because he writes about the streets and the smells that, you know, that you have going past a noodle shop like it just it brings me back home to a sense when you know I was in my early 20s when I lived in Japan and I think that was like my real awakening as an adult Mm. and uh, so his writing just takes me back there but you know all this to say that it might not be a book on leadership but uh, it certainly it gets my creative juices flowing yeah Mm. Fantastic. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. I have to check it out. I know. I'll send you a link to all of his work because there's, you know, advice I give for a writer like him is start with his earlier works because there's um, connections between his books. They're not siloed Mm -hmm. like many writers, you know, do. Um, Yeah. So if you start in the beginning and then work your way down to his portfolio of books, that's when you get like the biggest, uh, that's when it really makes the biggest impact on you. Mm. Yeah. Fascinating. We'll have to definitely uh, check (laughs) it out. I'm I'm an avid reader myself. (laughs) Great. Yeah. Closing question. Uh, Clearly, all of us want to leave a legacy of some sort in all uh, things that we do, family, friends, our leadership journey, etc., what do you want people to remember you by? Hmm. Well, honestly, I, I want them to remember me as an accessible, kind person. Mm-hmm. I know that might seem, you know, like bare basics, but I think in today's world, there's such a lack of human kindness mm-hmm. that it's important for those of us in leadership positions to really walk that talk strongly. And, um, you know, it's important that we do it in all aspects of our lives. You know, I want my daughter to be a kind, you know, person and Mm -hmm. to care about her community and her friends, uh, not just now, but, you know, when I'm gone, you know, Mm -hmm. when she has her own family. And likewise, you know, I want the survivors uh, who are getting helped by CAST to remember me as, you know, not the, you know, not the the leader who only cares about business, mm-hmm. but someone they can come to when they need help, 
And it might mean that it's just just that, like being more accessible and having a warm smile might mm-hmm. be that game changer for someone. In fact, it was. This just happened, uh, was it the week before last, we celebrated the Thanksgiving holiday at one of our shelters. Mm-hmm. This is an annual tradition at CAST where we you know, teach Uh, survivors uh, about the tradition of Thanksgiving, Mm -hmm. but it also is a lot more like the United Nations where everyone brings a a dish from their own culture. And I mean, even the smell, it's just, it's an amazing uh, celebration that we have every year. Yeah. And uh, when I was there, and I always make a point, uh, you know, I think a lot of leaders, especially as their company or organization grows, they tend to stop doing some of the basic stuff that is important. Mm-hmm. And for me, it's it's this Thanksgiving celebration. Um, I have not missed one. Mm-hmm. And the reason is it's important for survivors who are just starting their journey um, to healing, to you know, rebuilding their lives, mm-hmm. it's important for them to know that I care mm-hmm. and that I'm invested in their journey. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, plus it's so enjoyable. Mm-hmm. You know, it's what, three hours of amazing fellowship and mm-hmm. sisterhood and, and great food and music. <laughs> Who wouldn't want to go to that? Um, but it's equally important that as leaders, we're showing up. Thank you for sharing that. You know, it's uh, it's been an absolute privilege to have you on the show. Oh, thank you. For, Same uh, here. Sharing these in- wonderful insights, fun. you know, and I thank you again for coming on. I hope we'll have many more opportunities to I do I hope so, so too. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank, thank you. you.